Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart, and I'm very forgiving, but, like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Hey, fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Caddy Kay's adolescent life was out of the ordinary for a young girl. She was constantly moving around to different parts of the world, from Japan to Zimbabwe. Since then, she has settled in Washington, D.C. and has had a successful career as a journalist. On this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast, Caddy Kay recalls what it was like to experience living in multiple countries and what have been the most interesting moments throughout her journalism career. Hey, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm okay. Yeah, what another crazy week. Yeah, yeah, it's... um, It just has to stop. It has to stop. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's going to, though, right? For a while. I'm trying to organize a trip to go see my dad in the UK, and it's like, I can't barely get away, and then trying to get from the UK back here. Trying to travel now has just got a lot more complicated. Yeah, I, I think the drama continues, don't you? Because I think he's going to do a rally over the next several weeks. and Something. Yeah, I mean, he's going to want to go back to his supporters and say, you know what, I didn't really mean it, right? I mean, he's got to reassure them that he's still on their side. I think that he didn't really mean that video that they were, you know, had to follow the law. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't think much will happen. God, it's like a, you know, sort of Fort Knox in Washington at the moment. So I don't think anything happens here over the next few days. I mean, I think we get through the next week of inauguration safely because it's total gridlock of troops downtown. Yeah. But that that probably means if they're smart, they just try somewhere else. Right. I mean. Oh, I think I think 100 percent. Yeah. I, I mean, because you saw what happened in Michigan. Was that a month and a half, two months ago? And. So why not try it somewhere else? You have to believe Arizona. Why try it here when there are as many troops on the ground as there are? Right. So I think we're probably fine, but then I just don't know what happens somewhere else. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, it has to stop sooner. This has been like the most insane news period. (laughs) Right, right, right. How much do you do on on the Brits? Do you do very much on on the Brits or or not really? Because 
the BBC is based there and has the ability to, to give all the coverage that's needed? Very, very little. I mean, the show that I co-anchor, so I have two shows. I have an hour-long show which broadcasts in the UK and around the world, and that is ostensibly US and British politics. But it was a ton of British politics when British politics was interesting and now not much. I mean, it's a lot of COVID. We do a lot of COVID on the show. And then the half-hour show that I do is Global News. That's the PBS show. And that is not very much British news. So I don't do, I don't like touching British news because we have people who know much more about it. And we get into, we're under such scrutiny at home over British news that it's not worth me wading into, you know. You as in the BBC, you're saying because it's a publicly funded entity? As in the BBC, because it's a public broadcaster and there are certain, a bit like, you know, Fox hates liberal media here, there are certain media outlets in the UK that really don't like the BBC. So every time anyone on the BBC says something they don't like or disagree with, it's, it makes the front pages. And it's just, I, it's not my beat. So I would rather steer clear of it if I can. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting to see the structure that the BBC has with the support from everyday people there. And the and what it's become in terms of a global powerhouse, because, you know, even as much as the news, I now also think about the BBC and entertainment as well. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, that's, you know, yeah. you think of David Attenborough, right? And all our natural history programs. And I mean, I, in some ways, I sort of think, yes, the BBC is what a lot of the news is what a lot of people know us for. But really, I think some of what we have been best at is the drama and the and the natural history stuff and the history programs and, the, and a lot of children's education programs that are very good. So, but when I think about shows like The Fall and um, Downton Abbey and all of those, am I still watching the BBC? Downton Abbey was not BBC. That wasn't BBC. Oh, interesting. Okay. Much to our chagrin. Right. right. <laughs> uh, because it was a massive moneymaker globally and we missed it. That was ITV. That was our competitor. Interesting. And ITV is a private company or another public? Yeah. ITV is a private company. Interesting. Okay. So it's sort of the, you know, PBS, CNN equivalent. Oh, interesting. If there were only two, if there were only PBS and CNN, that would be the sort of equivalent. And then there's a Channel 4, right? Channel 4, which is part of ITV. Okay. 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 Yeah. Interesting. Um, Yeah. Well, I am so glad that you're doing this. I hope we're going to have fun. We're going to cover all sorts of stuff um, uh, over the course of it. It's funny because in a way I, I feel I, I feel like I know you, but then I realized as I was getting ready for this that maybe I only know part of you and that I don't know all of you. So thank you for doing this. Welcome. Thank you. And this is strange for me because now the tables get turned. And you know us <laughs> journalists, Carlos, we like asking the questions. And now I'm suddenly thinking, oh, my God, do I feel very uncomfortable? And what's he going to ask? And how much do I have to reveal? So this is this is good. You're putting me in the hot seat. I love it. I, I it's love good it. and a little outside my comfort zone. You know what? It, it's good. Someone said to me recently, lean into your terror. So I like that. I'm, I'm embracing that. And we had uh, the, uh, the uh, German filmmaker, Werner Herzog, who said, open a window. He said, just open a window and, you know, allow yourself to fly out. So I'm, uh, that's kind of my, new, that's my yeah. new thing. Now now I know, like, how all the people I interview feel being on the receiving end of this. So be gentle, Carlos. I will. I will be very gentle. Actually, that's a good question. Who has been your most difficult interview you've ever had? And I'm purposefully allowing you to define difficult. But who's been your most difficult interview you've ever had? Um, 
Well, Ben Carson, who is uh, President Trump's uh, Secretary of Health, no, no, of, home, of, of HUD, Housing and Urban Development, he told me I should have my microphone turned off on air, so that wasn't didn't go down so well. Um, John Bolton once told me I should be fired on air. That wasn't so great either. I, I've had a string of often men, older men, tell me to shut up, basically, politicians. So I don't know what – and I'm a nice person. I really am. I'm nice. Um, so that I, and I don't like those interviews – I, I'm not a very confrontational person. I, I kind of don't like those, you know, gotcha interviews. I, I never have a sense of satisfaction when I'm, I like being forensic in my interviewing, but I don't like sort of putting somebody in a position that I feel is a bit unfair or um, so sometimes those are a bit awkward. But, you know, the hardest interviews are always when you interview somebody who's in pain. I mean, that's always, you know, particularly parents or, I mean, I would, the, the single hardest story I've ever covered was Newtown. And I was up in Sandy Hook the next day and we stayed up there for a week and we did the show from there. And really, I just felt I wanted to go. I mean, I wanted to leave because not, because it, it was very hard. My daughter was, youngest daughter was six at the time. So she was the age of those children. So on a, on a personal level, it was very emotionally draining, but I felt they didn't want us there. They That town in that moment did not want the world's media there. Um, and I was trying to get us away as soon as I could because I just felt it. They, they were dealing with so much and to add that pressure. And for the first few days, people were very welcoming. And then it was very clear after about five or six days, they were done. They wanted us out of there. They needed to get to the process as a community of helping each other. And, and we weren't helping. Do you ever see people when they're in the midst of of being interviewed by you that something clicks or some or they realize something or something really hits home? Have you had many of those moments when you're in the process of of interviewing someone? Hmm, that makes me sound like a bit of a therapist. Um, uh, sometimes, maybe sometimes you feel somebody comes to a realization. Or sometimes somebody will say something which is more honest than perhaps they intended to say, and they realize they're saying it. Now, that can happen with, in fact, it's happened quite recently. I was interviewing somebody just a few days ago who, this week, who has been quite close to President Trump. Uh, and he's somebody who I talk to quite often uh, on a back channel, and he was on my program. Um, and he suddenly came to the realization as we were talking, because I'd pushed him to say, well, you know, have you been one of the people around President Trump's who could have said perhaps more than you did about the election not being stolen? And he kind of said on air, oh, my goodness, if the president is watching this, he's going to think I'm disloyal too. And, and you could see him kind of going through, well, I'm going to do it because I don't think the election was stolen. And this is what I believe. But you could see he was in a difficult position. It's not quite what you're, I think what you're talking about, which is, have I seen somebody come to a, an emotional realization? Yeah, yeah. But it was an interesting sort of insight into, and I love that moment in interviews where you see somebody's brain working, where you can literally see the cogs turning and they get to a position or they come up with an explanation. I like that moment. Who's the most talented person you've ever come across, whether you were interviewing them, working with them, uh, saw them speak, what have you, but using whatever definition that you want? Because I think you have such a beautiful global purview, and you probably have gotten access to so many different people in a variety of scenarios. Who's, who's on that list for you, whether there's a person or maybe a couple of people? 
So somebody I've always hugely admired, um, and I've interviewed several times, both uh, for my BBC job, but also for all the work I do about women and women in business, is Christine Lagarde. I don't know if you know who she is. She used to be yeah, the, sure. the, the head of the International Monetary Fund. She was the first female head of the International Monetary Fund, and she's French. And I love her because she's insanely competent and smart and at the top of her game and impressive, right? So she's very professionally prof impressive. And she's the managing, well, was until recently the managing director of the International Monetary Fund. So she has this grand title and security and limos, etc. A lot of people I've interviewed in that kind of position, and I think men in particular, carry with them a sort of aura of... Um, omnipotence and they're kind of puffed up often and you have to kind of treat them with a sort of certain amount of deference. She is totally the opposite. She's super warm. She's really nice. Um, she listens. She's regular. And she's not just like that with me because I'm a journalist and she can, might be kind of thinking, what's she going to say about me? She was like that with every single person in the room and on the set and in my crew. She was just nice and regular and she'll, you know, kick her shoes off and put her feet on the sofa and, and she'll do it with anybody. And I think that's, it's disarmingly powerful uh, to be that way uh, because she comes across as somebody who is very competent, very effective, very impressive, uh, but also really warm and friendly. And there aren't many men in particular in that kind of position of power who let themselves be that intimate and regular. And I think there is a, I've always been, she's always been a huge, I'm a huge fan of hers and she has been a real role model for me because of that. Flip it to the other side, uh, uh, if you feel comfortable doing that. Uh, when you think about people who, for whatever reason, have strayed off the path of humanity, who's on that list? Numerous politicians um, who I've interviewed over the years, particularly, uh, I'm not going to name an individual because uh, I'm, I'm not sure that's very fair and it would put me in a position of, of uh, slamming somebody that I don't know that I would feel comfortable with, but uh, untold numbers of uh, politicians from both parties who, who seem to have lost some sense of um, humility. I think for me, the real tell when I'm interviewing somebody is if they're arrogant. I, I have very little tolerance for arrogance or pomposity. And you come across it a lot, not just actually in politics, you come across it in business, and you certainly come across it in the media. Um, where people's egos can get very inflated. Uh, and I think that's what I, I have very little tolerance for people whose, whose egos are inflated and who have lost their sense of curiosity about other people or, or have a sense that they don't need to be curious about the people they're talking to, an assumption that they're better than them. Uh, and you know this, Carlos. I mean, unfortunately, we, we come across it too often, right? I mean, it, it happens. And, and maybe it's a function of the fact that we are in a business where we speak to people that have a certain amount of power. And that's why it's particularly refreshing, I think, for me, when you meet somebody who has power, but who is humble and curious about other people uh, and, and other things in life. Well, how did you choose journalism? Because neither of your parents were journalists. I didn't. I swore I was never going to be a journalist. When I was at university, almost every single one of my friends was going to leave university and join the BBC. So I decided I was never going to do that. I was going to do almost anything but that. 
Um, and actually straight out of university, I went to the Bank of England. Uh, and what I wanted to do was become a development economist. I wanted to work in developing countries. So my, my, my dad had been a diplomat and we'd traveled all over the world, lived in the Middle East. And I knew I loved living abroad. And I particularly loved living in emerging economies in developing uh, countries. So I had a real affinity for that. That felt like home for me. And I wanted to work in that field, but I didn't want to be a diplomat. My dad had done that. And I was intrigued by people who were working in development. That seemed like something I would be interested in. I had some sense of calling for it. And so I went to join the Bank of England thinking I could learn enough economics that I could read the Financial Times. Then I could apply to postgrad school and get a degree in development economics. Remember that I had done my undergraduate degree in medieval Italian literature. So that was kind of a jump <laughs> to go and become a development economist. I, and then I happenstance, I ended up in Zimbabwe working for an aid agency. And while I was working in Zimbabwe for an aid agency, a friend of mine um, who did work for the BBC came out and said, my God, Cathy, this is crazy. There are so many good stories here. You should be telling these stories. And he had brought with him a little tape recorder. And he literally said, now, this is the record button and this is the play button. And you push them at the same time. And that is how I started doing journalism. And, and loved it right out of the gate? Or did it take a moment before it really clicked for you? Yeah, no, I did. I mean, I, yeah, I did. I like the process of settling stories. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious. I'm nosy. You know, I like. I like asking people questions about themselves. And it always amazes me. People talk to journalists. They tell them stuff about their lives. I mean, here, you know, I'm an uptight Brit. I don't tell people stuff about my life. But, you know, <laughs> I'll go talk to people. with. And there I was in Zimbabwe, and I'd have, you know, this little microphone. And, and I'd, you know, walk up to people and, you know, we'd talk about uh, land reform or the independence uh, process in Namibia or... I don't know, uh, it was the period of uh, the height of the AIDS crisis in Zimbabwe. And, you know, I'd go around and talk to kind of people who were known as witch doctors in markets. And they'd be telling me that, you know, you could cure AIDS with this little thing that they had. And it was absolutely true. You could definitely cure AIDS. And I just found it fascinating to, to talk to people and, 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 and find out how people think and what makes them work. Maybe I should have been, if I hadn't been a journalist, I think I would have liked to have been a psychologist. I was going to ask you if you ever thought about joining MI6. Had you ever thought about being a spy? You know, my mum was in intelligence. So she left Cambridge when not very many women went to Cambridge. And then she joined GCHQ, which is our equivalent of the NSA, which is our kind of decoding outfit. And she joined, um, she became a decoder. And uh, I don't think I'm good enough at keeping secrets. Uh, everyone would have known that I was a spy. It, was, you know, it wouldn't have worked out. I'd have told you everything. Yeah. I'd have told you the state secrets, and then I'd be locked up for good, so it wouldn't have really worked. I think it could have been such interesting work. We had the former director of the CIA uh, uh, on the show recently, and he, um, he's also a magician on the side. And so what an interesting life he led in all sorts of interesting places. And I would assume, as someone who grew up abroad, I would assume that part of your circle probably had lots of people in intelligence besides your mom. And probably, in fact, lots of lots of spies, I assume. Oh, yeah. Um, and we were always, it was always a sort of fun parlor game, you know, in Saudi Arabia or Morocco or, you know, Bahrain, to, to guess who it was in the embassy who was the spook. And I, and I have to say, we always sort of wondered, was my mum, had she really given up intelligence? Do you ever really leave the family of the intelligence community? She would have been an excellent spy because she never revealed anything. She was very poker-faced. Uh, look, I, I think the other problem with being, for me, for being intelligence in intelligence is that to do it well, 
you have to accept the premise that you might put other people's lives in danger in the service of your country's national interest. And I'm just not sure I, how I would have felt about that. Um, I think I'm too much of a softie. I think, I think I would have struggled with that. And I think if you can't do, you've got to be able to compartmentalize to that degree to be effective. And I, I would have found that difficult. Did you ever think about politics? Because so many of the people who, you went to Oxford, yes? Yeah. So many of the people who, who went to Oxford or Cambridge, it feels like, are always running the uh, the British government. Yeah, I And know. I assume a number of the people who are there now, you know, probably were classmates. Did you ever think about entering politics? Yeah, I mean, Boris Johnson was a classmate. David Cameron was a classmate. It's, it's absurd that I come from this country where... where one school, Eton, and one university, Oxford, seems to be the conduit to power for so many people. I mean, it's crazy and it has to change. Uh, No, I never thought about going into politics. Sometimes people here in the States have asked me why I don't, would I please run for politics? I think sometimes I go and, you know, I'm talking to people and they're saying, oh my God, you should run for politics. Uh, I I, I have, no, I'm, I'm too much of an observer I don't know if you feel this, Carlos, but uh, as a reporter, you're an observer, right? I like, it's why I'm comfortable being an expat. I like living in a foreign country. I grew up living in a foreign country most of my life being a foreigner. And so I'm sort of emotionally comfortable with it. But I think I'm also intellectually comfortable with it. It gives me this license to, to be a fly on the wall. And if you're in politics, you've got to be stuck in there. There's no being on the wall, you are in the middle of the room, in the middle of the fight. Uh, and I think I like the process of observing and analyzing, which is an incredible luxury. I mean, I realize how inc- how privileged that is. And I do have some qualms, particularly about the expat bit, that I-, I don't vote. I have a green card. I don't have American citizenship. So I don't vote in American elections. I don't vote in UK elections because I'm not allowed to, because I've been non-resident for too many years. So I'm kind of disenfranchised. And uh, at some point, I think I need to take ownership of the society or the, the country I live in because it's too easy to say, I live here and I can be a critic, whether it's the UK or whether it's America or whether it's Zimbabwe or Japan where I've lived or France where I've lived, any of the countries I've lived in. I'm, I'm outside enough that I can observe the problems without feeling as being responsible for them through the ballot box. And at some point, I think that probably has to end. I have to, you know, I have to put my money where my mouth is. We'll get back to that interview in just a bit, but first I wanted to share a timely conversation that I had with the former governor of Ohio, John Kasich. Now, we talk a lot in this country about the American dream, where it came from, whether it still exists, and whether it ever existed. But what is the American dream? Kasich shared this honest and insightful definition. I came from a a blue-collar factory town where if the wind blew the wrong way, people found themselves out of work. And, you know, you turn around and through hard work and a lot of people helping me, I got to be, you know, a congressman. I got to be governor. I ran for president, came close. And I'm on this kind of a panel with these very distinguished uh, people here, you know. And so American dream is the ability to think that tomorrow can be even better than today. And the the people that you love, that they can achieve their, their destiny. Our conversation was part of a panel on race, politics, and the American dream brought to you in partnership with Chevrolet. You can hear the full discussion on ozzy.com slash real talk or on our Ozzy YouTube channel.
Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like a recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women, like, especially when it comes to Black women. The way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean, it's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. like for you as a young woman, as a girl even, being a young white woman in countries that were majority people of color, whether it was in the Middle East or Africa or Japan or what have you? Was it, was it I don't even want to put words in your mouth. What, what was that like? So it's different in different cultures, of course. Um, and particularly, I think, in the Middle East was the most challenging um, Growing up as a blonde, uh, prepubescent girl and then as a teenager in very strict Muslim countries was challenging. Um, I, I grew up assuming it was normal that people would touch my hair in public. I mean, I, I thought that's what people did to other kids in a way that was kind of like I was very exotic. I mean, we were literally in places in the Middle East because my mother was an inveterate traveler. So 
my mum's idea of a holiday or a fun was every weekend she would bundle us into the car and we would drive off into the middle of the empty quarter and go and stay in, you know, in some Bedouin camp for a few days. And that was what passed as my kind of holiday when I was a child. And my mother spoke very good Arabic and she was very curious. So she was always talking to these people and they would always just be literally kind of touching my hair, you know, pulling at it and touching it. And, and I, and I found it mildly irritating. Sometimes it could get a bit scary, particularly when it was men. Um, and there was some issue there of being a young blonde girl or being a young girl in a very Muslim, very male culture could be quite uncomfortable. And I was conscious of the fact that my mother, uh, you know, she wasn't technically allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia, but she did sometimes. She would dress up in a head headgear and a kefir and my dad hated driving. And I remember one time actually some guy in the car behind us realized it was a woman driving and tried to drive us off the edge of the mountain. We were driving up an escarpment. I remember being really scared of that. And I remember always thinking it was very unfair for her that she was in this culture where she was very restricted on what in what she could do. So I think that was the hardest. Uh, then Japan was an eye-opener because I had thought I had lived all over the world and was used to living in different cultures. But boy, you know, I turn up in Japan and it is a very different culture, um, much, far more uh, unfamiliar than I had expected. Uh, even though I spent three months living with a Japanese family and learning to speak passable Japanese um, so I could get around and do what I needed to do. But it was a really different culture. So it was, that was an eye-opener for me, too, to turn up. And not just as a white person, but as any foreigner, right? There just aren't very many foreigners. And you suddenly feel like you're big and clumsy and you're going to do the wrong thing and you don't know where the bathroom slippers are and you turn up somewhere and you don't know the logistics and you're going to embarrass somebody and you're going to embarrass yourself and it's all going to be a disaster. And that's how it felt constantly living in Japan. I was putting my foot in my mouth constantly so it, it was it was fascinating but quite alienating and what about in Zimbabwe what was Zimbabwe like because Zimbabwe's got a special place in my family's heart I grew up being called by a Shona name a Zimbabwean name um and my mom had had students from Zimbabwe and uh and so it always for a variety of reasons stood out but what was that like to uh, to spend time there yeah I could practice my Shona on you <laughs> I learned a little bit when I was there um, so it, it was really interesting going to Zimbabwe. I went to Zimbabwe in 1989, which was not very long, a decade after independence. And I had assumed as not just a white person, but as a Brit, right? We were the colonizers that as a Brit turning up in Zimbabwe, that I would face quite a lot of hostility. And that's what I had expected. And actually the opposite was true. People were, uh, and we traveled all over the country, I, I had never felt safer, uh, more welcome. Um, there was a, obviously a language barrier because I did learn some Shona, but I didn't learn enough Shona to have a real conversation with people. So there was a language barrier. There was a wealth barrier. I was much wealthier than 99.5% than of the country. Um, and there was some... But there was never a sense that I was a colonizer. That was fascinating to me. I had I had expected that, that, that there would be antipathy towards me. And even amongst, um, I think Zimbabweans, by the time I got there, the internal domestic politics of Zimbabwe had meant that the, the kind of Zimbabwean elite who were political and educated and politically active were much more focused on Mugabe and Mugabe's repression than they were on the historical legacy 
of British colonial rule. They had a real fight on their hands to try and, and do something about Mugabe and to try and uh, advance the democratic process. And I'm sure there was a wealth of grievances that people had totally understandably. Um, but their, their focus in that moment was Mugabe and not the Brits and not colonialism. And how did you live your life in those cases? Did you find that you lived your life in an expat world? Did you find that your life got integrated in with locals? What, what ended up being the case there? So in, in Zimbabwe, we had a lot of Zimbabwean friends, and they were, they were mo- mostly kind of educated Zimbabweans who had often been abroad for university um, or had lived in South Africa or had, had, were, they were kind of Zimbabwean elite in that sense, liberal Zimbabwean elite. Um, we didn't have many white Zimbabwean friends. We had journalist friends. I mean, you live in a kind of, you know, we would travel off to Namibia to cover the Namibian independence election, uh, election and then we would go down south to South Africa. And so there was a kind of cohort of journalists when you're living as a, a foreign correspondent somewhere, you do fall in with other journalists. The place it was hardest to make friends, for, uh, Middle East, we always had uh, a mixture of Arab friends and expat friends. Because my mother spoke very good Arabic, she often had, particularly amongst women, she had good female uh, Arab friends, not men. Uh, it was hard to make male Arab friends for her. That That's true. And my dad's Arabic was not that good. But she had a lot of, and she, right until the end of her life, she was still in contact with many of those uh, uh, Arab friends of hers from Bahrain and from uh, Dubai and from Lebanon particularly. Uh, Japan, it was hard. Um, and my Japanese was functional. I could do what I needed to do. And I had a young child there. My first child was born in Tokyo. So I could kind of do all the kind of kid stuff. I became a whiz at talking about changing diapers in Japanese. I was that I had down. Um, But I didn't have very many good Japanese friends. I had one very good Japanese friend who had lived abroad. And she became godmother to my children. And we're very close. But she had lived abroad. And there was a real difference for Japan between Japanese who had lived abroad and Japanese who were in Japan. And the family we lived with, we lived with a Japanese family for three months. He was a kimono painter. She was a housewife. We became friendly with them. And they were sweet. But it's hard. There's a, a really, there is a real cultural barrier um, and, and some suspicion of outsiders and just the language makes it very difficult. If you don't have the language well enough to converse over dinner in a, in a society, it's really difficult, I think, to make friends with people who don't speak your language. Kelly, I want to go in a, a slightly different direction because I'm always fascinated by what has surprised people in this life. Like if you were to go back and talk to 21-year-old Caddy, like, what is going to surprise her in this life? And I don't mean that with any restriction. I'm literally just curious. What would have surprised her? What would you go back and tell her, hey, here are a couple things that are going to surprise you, going to catch you off guard? I never expected to have a career in the sense that I've had one. Um, I never expected to be a reasonably well-known author who has written New York Times bestselling books or had my own TV show. That would have totally floored me at the age of 21. And I think it's because whilst my mother always worked, my father had the career. And my mother's career, which was probably much more interesting, followed my father's career. And my mother went to university and encouraged my sister and I, both my sister went to Cambridge and I went to Oxford and definitely encouraged you know us to, get, to have educations and careers. But I don't think it would have occurred to me at 21 
So this would have been back in 19, uh, 1985 that a woman's career could lead. I, th- I, I don't think in the 1980s that seemed very possible still. I still assumed that I would follow something like the role model of my parents where my husband, whoever he was, would have the main career and we might travel around, but it would probably be his career and I would, I would fit my career in around that. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, and I don't think it's that my mother and father ever said to me that I wasn't smart enough or capable enough or talented enough or would work hard enough. I just sort of didn't think that was the way the world worked. Did did that create any drama for you along the way when you realized that your career could be a main career, uh, maybe the main career, a really unique in this world career? Did that create drama for you either internally with your mate, with friends, with family, or or was it just something that began to happen and you know while it was a surprise, it was you know it was relatively seamless. Yeah, I think it was something that happened incrementally, um, you know, sort of step by step. I wrote one book that did really well, and then I wrote another book that did really well, and I had one TV show, and then the TV show grew, and then I got one audience and then another audience, and it all kind of started adding to each other. I think uh, it was my husband who used to be a BBC journalist and now uh, runs a nonprofit based mostly out of Africa and does um, some editing and consulting on the side. I think there was a moment where he kind of thought, Wow, I'm going. There's a slight kind of shift here where Catty's time is being taken up much more, and I'm going to need to step up on the domestic front. And we had conversations around that, you know. uh, And I think a lot of couples are doing that. I mean, I think it's there's a really interesting shift happening, and I'm seeing this in the work I'm doing uh, on women on, on a new book we're writing about women and power. That there is a shift taking place in relationships as well, where you know my husband's father never changed a diaper, um, never organized a play date, wouldn't have known what a lunchbox was if it hit him on the head. Uh, He died 10 years ago at the age of 93. He was born just before the First World War. My husband's mother didn't go to university and never worked. So my husband had no role model for being in a relationship, in a marriage where a wife worked and had a successful career and therefore the father also stepped in and did more of the parenting. And I think I'm not unique. Uh, I like to think of this generation as men as a kind of sandwich generation. You guys are in your 50s, men in their 50s, don't have a role model of a father who was an engaged father. It, It just does not exist. So they are having to create that and hopefully pass that on to their own sons and daughters. And they will do. My children will have grown up with a dad who, you know, when there's a problem at school, the school calls Tom. They don't call me because I'm often working or traveling. And that's a real shift in relationships. Um, and, and he's, you know, he's stepped up to the plate and embraced it. And I think he loves it. I mean, I feel, I think he feels sad for his dad that his dad never really had that opportunity. Was there any challenge on his part to that? Did he, did he, did he struggle with it at all or did he move brightly towards the light? Yeah, there, we've had conversations about it, and I think there have been times when he did struggle with it. And I think some of the struggle, too, was because he came out of journalism. He used to be a war correspondent, uh, and he covered Rwanda and Somalia and Bosnia and you know, had several years of kind of, I'm sure, PTSD from the things he saw in those war zones. And then when we had children, he, he made the decision. He didn't want to go and to go to wars anymore and cover wars, and he wanted to you know, be with the kids more. 
Uh, and then as my career picked up, I think it, yeah, there were definitely challenges, and particularly because we we're in similar fields and I was a, I'm a journalist too. Um, and I think people are having, are navigating every couple where this is happening, they are navigating these conversations. And, and I don't think it is always easy. I think it would, it would do a disservice to everybody who's in a similar position to say, oh, yeah, this is breezy. My husband's always found it easy. I've always found it easy. No, of course we haven't. Um, it works and we have great conversations and he is an amazing father and he's really good at what he does at work. Uh, and he is dealing with a wife who is successful in quite a public way. And I think that's uh, that can be challenging for everybody. It's challenging for me and it's challenging for him. But on the whole, he also sees the benefits of it too, right? I mean, he loves he loves the fact that I'm successful. He loves when I do well. Um, and, you know, there are upsides too. What advice do you give to young women who are beginning to have the kind of success that you ultimately had and are struggling with this, or if not struggling, at least dealing with it and trying to figure out how to navigate it. What's some of the best advice that you give them about, you know, whatever you've learned either in your own situation or in other situations you've come across? So I think one thing I think for young women who are starting out particularly, maybe not who are kind of have or already, you know, had quite a lot of success is that you're better than you think you are. Women tend to undervalue their ability. All the work I've done in the research we have done on women and confidence and girls and confidence has shown that women's perception of their ability skews lower than their actual ability. Men's perception of their ability tends to skew, surprise, surprise, Carlos, higher than their ability. I'm sure this does not come as a surprise. Columbia University, by the way, has put a figure on this. Men's perception of their ability they think they're about 30% more able than they are. Right. And it, they call it honest overconfidence. The, the men actually really believe this. They really believe they are better than they are. Women tend to believe they are less good than they are. So you're better than you think you are. And you're not there by the grace and favor of some employer. You are there because you are good. And I think if you can really internalize that, if you can bring your perception of your ability in line with your actual ability, you will take more risks. You will go for those stretch assignments. You will go for those promotions. You will go for those challenges because you will be honest about your abilities rather than perhaps undervaluing your abilities. And when you undervalue abilities, risks seem just daunting, right? You think um, you, you catastrophize things. I can't possibly take this risk because the sky will fall on my head. Well, no, the sky won't fall on your head. And actually, you're good enough to handle this. And I wish... I wish somebody had said that to me when I was starting out in my 20s, that I wasn't there because I was lucky. I was there because I was good. Interesting. And who was the first person ever to say that to you? Or, or were you the first person to say it to yourself? I was the first person to say it to myself. Interesting. So, so, so not, not your mom, not your dad, not your sister. Oh, no. My, uh, no. I, well, I, I mean, professionally, I was the first person to say it to myself. My, my mom was very proud of me. And she was slightly, you know, amazed, I think, at, at things that, uh, because it's public, right? You know, there's this weird thing about television. People sort of think everybody knows you and that you're much more famous than you are. And, oh my God, we saw your daughter on television yesterday. And, and they used to like it when, you know, they lived thousands of miles away. So it was really nice for them when somebody said, oh yeah, Kathy was on television last night. But it's a weird job. It's not like I'm a vet where nobody's talking about what I do or a lawyer where you're kind of working away, being far more successful, but it's just, it's not on television. And I'm always conscious of that. There's this strange thing about being on television that gives you this slightly unfair advantage that 
people think you are famous or think you are important or they are impressed by you. I guess movie stars get this way, way more. But, you know, people who are really actually famous get this way, way more. People sort of imbue you with some kind of quality that you don't necessarily have, um, that they think you're sort of slightly superhuman or, I don't know, elevated in some way. And it's only because you're on television. I mean, let's be honest, it's only because it's a public medium. Um, so, yeah, my mum my was always saying, she, you know, she was very proud of me. Uh, I think, you know, I mean, in a professional sense, I don't think, I think it took me becoming successful and getting a name for myself in the United States for my employers back in the UK to think, oh, this woman has something that we really value. It kind of follows, people's, my, I, I think my professional recognition from my bosses and peers followed my success rather than the other way around. Was there a tipping point in particular? Was it a book? Was it a show? Was it an award? Um, Was it a profile? I, I suppose it's different in different areas, right? Certainly when my first book was in the New York Times bestseller list, uh, that got people's attention. Then my second book was in the New York Times bestseller list. And then my third book went to number one in the New York Times bestseller list. And suddenly people, people who write books, therefore, recognize that. Uh, then I'm starting to be on American television um, regularly and on some of the big shows. And so people who are in television recognize that. People recognize the different bits of it, depending on which bit of your career they're interested in. Hey, my name is Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Rourke, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. 
Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean, it's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's the smartest thing you think you've done in your career? Like, like, like if, if you go back, and I'm saying this in part because I want people to learn and learn from other people. And, and so I'm still having you kind of whisper back to the 21-year-old. What's the smartest thing you've done in your career in terms of career growth? I mean, this might sound horribly pedestrian, but sticking with something for a long time, longevity, that sounds really boring, doesn't it? But longevity has an advantage. Um, and I say this partly because my husband and I have had conversations with this. Tom has much less of a, is much more impatient than I am and likes to try lots of different things. And he's had a great career with lots of different pockets. I've had one career kind of doing the same thing for a long time. And it's brought me, and, and by doing that, I've, I've built my own confidence. I've built my own expertise. I've become better and better at it. Um, and I've, I've become... I've perfected the art of what I do. And I think I wouldn't have done that if I'd chopped and changed. So uh, stick, find something that you are good at uh, and that you like um, and, and, and give yourself enough time sticking at it to build up the credits and to get better at it uh, and to be at the top of your game in it. I, I think the other thing, the thing that I think has been smartest that I've done in the terms of giving me a kind of second string to my bow and giving me something I've, I really love is all the work I've done on women. Um, I, I never set out to be a writer. I don't particularly think of myself as a writer, but I really love all the work we've done researching uh, women in business and women and confidence and how women can get as far as their talents allow them to get and, and manage the work-life balance issues um, and manage the professional space. I've, and now the work we've done with girls and girls' confidence, it's, it's great. You know, and the girls, are, they're super inspiring. We've got this new book coming out, which is 30 stories of girls from around the world doing cool, confident things. They are awesome. There's the Afghan robotics team. There's a girl in Nepal who's gone on a local radio station to talk about menstruation in order to encourage girls to be able to go to school when they have their periods. I mean, these girls are making the world a better place. They are fantastic. So, you know, I cover American politics. I have covered Donald Trump for the last four years. It's pretty exhausting and it can be quite dispiriting at times. But when I work with girls and I work with women, I suddenly, you know, you can see, I feel excited. You know, it's so interesting, both seeing you say that and hearing you say that, it feels to me like you have figured out a way to inject a little super dose of fun and enjoyment and excitement. And so for those who might struggle with longevity or struggle with staying with something that not that they dislike, but that may be solid, it feels like you've almost kind of created your own special meal so that you have that bit of delight. You know what I mean? Which I, which I, I, I love, I love that idea of, uh, 
of, uh, of kind of seizing your own destiny. And even I bet, and you tell me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but I would assume part of what you like is I assume that you're inspired by these girls and by these women. And so it probably also pushes you forward. And again, I may be projecting something on you, but I would assume in hearing about these very thoughtful, creative ways that people are living in the world, it may also embolden you a little bit. I, I think I feed off them. And certainly, you know, and I do a lot, I speak to women's groups a lot and I speak to girls in schools a lot and it's nourishing. You know, when I come out of this world of Washington where everyone's fighting and uh, you know what it's like covering American politics at the moment, it's draining and exhausting and it can be, it's stressful. This has been a really stressful presidency. This has been a stressful couple of months um, and to see the kind of animosity in the country and people pulling each other apart. And then I'll go and talk to a bunch of girls in a school or to a women's group uh, or a women's network of some kind. And there's this, you know, there's this uh, energy of support for each other and, and people are wanting the best for each other and wanting to help each other and wanting to get ahead and wanting to figure out how they can get ahead. And it's just, uh, and that's, it's, it, oh my God, it definitely gives me some, that is my therapy. That is my release from the day job that I do. Oh, I, I, lo I love hearing that. So what else would surprise the 21 year old? Because I'm always, I, I am intrigued about how life, and, and I may just be in a window in my own life where I'm trying to think about the things that, that, that would have surprised me. What else would have surprised you if I had, you know, if you could have talked to 21-year-old you? For me specifically, I would never have believed that I would have come to America in 1996 and ended up living in the same city for 25 years. I, I went to six schools in five years in three countries in two languages as a teenager between the age of 10 and 16. That was how itinerant and nomadic my life was. I thought that was what life was. I, I had never lived in a house for more than two years at a time, ever since I was born. And I'd never lived in a country for more than three years since I was born. So I assumed I would carry on doing that. So when I came to America, um, at, when I was in my very early 30s and, or 29, 30 and stayed here, uh, if somebody had said to me, you're going to stay in this city, for it that would have been like, you're going to go to Mars and live on Mars for the rest of your life. And so, uh, and and it's been great. I mean, there have been challenges because I had have had moments of itchy feet where I've wanted to go back to what I knew, my comfort zone. Um, but for various uh, professional and personal reasons, I got divorced while I was here. And then my ex-husband and I decided to stay on the same block and raise our children together. Um, and we did that for 15 years. And so that was why I, the commitment was made that we would stay in Washington. But actually, it's been great. Now, I found, hey, you know what? You stay somewhere, you make really good friends. You build a good career. I remember my mom saying that to me. She said, you know, part of the reason that you've managed to build your career is because you've stayed in one place. You haven't moved every three years. So I never would have thought that I was going to stay in one place. And I guess my situation might be very different from many young women in their 20s. But something may happen to you that you do not anticipate, that you think is not what you want, or that you think is not what you expect is going to happen, but actually really good things can come out of it. And just because it's not what you expect or anticipate, life changes. Go circumstances change. And it's your ability 
to pull the best from those changed, unanticipated, unexpected, perhaps even unwanted circumstances that will determine whether you thrive or not. Did, did you have this kind of mentality at 21, at 25, at 30? In other words, are, are you kind of like, is this your nature to turn uh, lemons into lemonade, as we would say here? Or did something happen along the way that either taught you that or affirmed that or, or thickened that within you? Um, I, I think I'm basically fairly optimistic. Yeah, I think I'm basically pretty much a glass half full person. Um, and I tell you what really changed for me, my solidity in life was having children. And I remember very clearly thinking that once I had my first child at the age of 29, and I was kind of young, uh, I mean, I'm not young by the standards of many women around the world, but I was quite young in terms of my peer group to have to get married and have children. Uh, I remember thinking once I had children, well, I'm never going to be alone now. And I have my meaning for existence. This is it. I, I know why I'm meant to be here. And everything else is a kind of bonus. So even when I, I remember when I got divorced, people said to me, well, aren't you worried you're going to be alone? I said, well, I'm never going to be alone. I have two kids. So I'm okay. You know, I'll be okay. I have these two children and I will have them for the rest of my life. And even in, I think that gave me a certain amount of solidity when it came to my career. I mean, it's great having a career. I love it. It's, it's really interesting. I love what I do. But it's icing on the cake, right? The cake is my kids. And I've been always, I've, that's just, I'm, I'm not, I don't agonize about being a parent. I don't kind of think, am I a good mom or a bad mom? I've never, I found it, it came very naturally for me. I guess that's why I have four kids. Um, and so the, so everything else has been just sort of a bonus. And I think I've, I'm really fortunate that I, I have got, I've had the chance to have lots of children in a big family and that it's given me such peace and solidity from which to build other things and take risks and try things. You see, I knew, I knew you would do this, Carlos. You're turning this into a therapy session, and I'm being far more open than I expected I was going to be. You know what? The, 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 best, the best always are. But I'm, I'm, I'm so, I, I mean, I, I love, I, I, I knew from afar that you had lived in different places and that that had made you comfortable outside of that. But it is actually really interesting as someone I know and spend time with every week. Like I'm hearing a different part of you that I don't think I knew. Like I didn't know how much you moved. I didn't know that you'd moved six times and and uh, five places, five schools and, and three countries. Or I don't think I had a good enough sense of, of, of your journey uh, to journalism and kind of how you think about it. And it is very interesting when I hear you talk about your kids as kind of your grounding. And it's such, whenever any of us, I think, are grounded in something, whether it's it's children, whether it's a faith and spirituality, whether it's a love of a particular person or work or what have you, there is something um, special that I think is true in, in, in your ability to contextualize things and kind of navigate uh, uh, the world. And so I think that you were you're, you're fortunate uh, in that way, and it's it's um, it's interesting for me to uh, to see that color. But how true is that that the Brits don't really like to reveal? Is it is that is that really true? You think that that, that the Brits the Brits like to uh, keep things close and keep things close to the vest? You think that's really true? We don't like to share. Um, it, it's possible that we don't like to share. Uh, I. 
there's some stereotype, right, about Americans will tell you everything and Brits will kind of tell you nothing. That, of course, look, some of my very closest girlfriends, and I have very close women friends, and many of them are British, and we share an awful lot. So, no, amongst my close friends, we don't share. The Brits, you ask a Brit, there's this great expression, I don't know this, if, if you know this, when you ask Brits, uh, you know, how are you doing, uh, the reply comes back, mustn't grumble. And the, I, this, I just love that sort of fantastic kind of negativity of sort of, well, I mustn't grumble about how the day is, but actually it's going really badly. Whereas, you know, then you ask an American, how are you doing? Awesome. And there is something to that stereotype uh, of uh, positivity and negativity. Um, do we like to? I think it's that journalists don't particularly like to share. I think we're not very... Well, here I am gabbing on about myself and telling you all about my life. But so clearly I, I, I need to hire a therapist because I, I want somebody <laughs> to talk to. And Carlos, you are it at the moment. But uh, I, I think as a journalist, you're more comfortable asking the questions than answering them. Yeah. No, it, it's I, I, I think good conversation, though, is good conversation. And, and part of me asking yeah. you about. No, I think that's true. I'm, I'm, I'm being a little facetious because I'm enjoying this conversation and you are a pleasure to talk to. And we've found that when we've been working together, and that's why we, we enjoy doing the show, our podcast that we do together, because it's a conversation. And, and next time, I'm going to ask you all of these questions, too. <laughs> you, you will have to. You will have to. All right, I'm going to hit you with what I call rapid fire. So I want to ask okay. you a series of things. I'd love to get your immediate reaction. Um, your favorite book? Uh, John le Carre's Honorable Schoolboy. Ooh, I love it. You went right for, for uh, the spy stuff. Okay, great. Um, most, be- most beautiful place you've ever been to? Uh, Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe. Victoria Falls or, or somewhere else? No, there, you can take a canoe ride from Lake Kariba along a river to the coast of Mozambique, and it is about the most beautiful place in the world. Wow. For years I've said that Victoria Falls was the most beautiful place I've been to. So you're telling me I was in the right country but the wrong part. I'll take you there next time. Oh, I look forward to that. That would, that would be good. That'd be good. Um, your favorite meal? What meal makes you smile? Cheese fondue. My grandmother was Swiss. And when I was growing up in all of these crazy countries, my point of sort of solidity was my grandmother's house in Switzerland, in the middle of Switzerland. And once a holiday, she would make us from scratch perfect cheese fondue i couldn't eat it every day but it has i love i love cheese fondue and it has memories of childhood and associations of my grandmother and my family for me i love that your uh, your favorite karaoke song what's your karaoke song i'm tone deaf i am never going to sing a karaoke song if you put a gun to my head it's not happening sorry love it or would you be a better boxer or a better dancer a better dancer if i hadn't I nearly went to ballet school, another thing you didn't know about me. At the age of 12, I applied to ballet school in the UK and applied to three, um, including the Royal Ballet School, which was the top ballet school. And I got through the interview process, but I didn't get into the Royal Ballet School. I got into the next two. If I had got into the Royal Ballet School, I would have gone to ballet school and become a ballet dancer. Who's your favorite ballerina? Probably Rudolf Nureyev. Uh, Fontaine. I, I loved Fontaine growing up, but, but Nureyev. Interesting, interesting. If uh, if there was going to be a movie of your life, who would you love to have play you? Wow, that feels that feels rather um, self-aggrandizing. Uh, who would I? Probably um, Kate Blanchett. Oh, that's a good choice. She would be good. 
That's a good choice. And who would play Tom? Um, George Clooney. Oh, I love that. Oh, I love that. Tom, be careful. She said George Clooney too quickly. I love that. <laughs> be, uh, uh, be very careful on that. Um, um, uh, what's the most surprising thing you've learned in your confidence work? And you may have already told me, but, but what a wonderful treat you've had to have that level of intimate conversations with a wide variety of people. What, what is the most interesting or surprising or valuable thing you've learned in your confidence work? Stop trying to be a perfectionist that uh, perfectionism is something that women and particularly teenage girls are very prone to. Um, it, it's obviously unattainable. It's a, an impossible standard to set yourself. It, it com- the pursuit of perfectionism is a confidence killer. Uh, it stops you taking risks. It makes you afraid of failing. Um, it, it makes it harder to do the things that you need to do to get outside of your comfort zone, to overcome hurdles, to try new stuff, to overcome failures. Uh, if you're trying to be perfect all the time, you're going to shy away from doing those things. So, so give up perfectionism. It's exhausting. You're never going to get there anyway. So interesting. As I hear you talk, something that I think would be really valuable in this world is what I would call risk classes or risk boot camps. Um, because I think that there are certain people for whom that's a kind of relatively natural thing for them. I think it's a relatively small percentage of people. But I think for most people, they need some uh, guidance in that. And there may be a variety of reasons that may stop them from risk, whether it's it's personal, structural, other things. But I think that almost, um, I think that could be a great joy. And I think that could be a great propeller or propellant for uh for, uh, for lots of people. Um, it could be something. Uh, we'll talk about that. We'll um, do that next. W- w- what is the best advice or the smartest thing you've ever done in dealing with a difficult situation? Because you know, not only does risk freeze people, but often controversy or challenge or something just not going right and dealing with that kind of messy situation that happens in real life. What is one of the best things you've either done or heard of being done that maybe I and others could learn from in terms of how to deal with a difficult situation? So I think in my case, it's that I'm very, I don't like confrontation. It makes me very uncomfortable. It makes me very stressed. Maybe it does for many people. And I think one way that I've found that helps me to deal with any difficult situation is to kind of think mentally through what's the worst that's going to happen what's the worst that's going to happen if I pick up the phone and I have that difficult conversation? And and generally speaking, if I'm honest, the worst that's going to happen is much less than my imagination is letting me believe it is. So I think that for me is a useful tool. And it's not just in terms of confrontation, but in terms of taking risks or in terms of trying hard things. There's a great phrase that psychologists have told me uh, about teenage girls is that teenage girls tend to catastrophize. And I I see that with my own children, that some of them are more prone to catastrophizing. You know, Poppy might get a bad grade in maths and she goes from, well, I got a a B minus in my maths quiz to I'm never going to graduate from middle school to I'm never going to graduate from high school. I'm never going to go to college. I'm never going to go have any friends. I'm going to be living under a bridge. And that happens in about 20 seconds. And that is catastrophizing. And I think I have a tendency to catastrophize difficult situations. So be honest about the downside. Really think it through. What is the worst thing that's going to happen if I try X? And generally speaking, it's not as bad as you've been telling yourself. And I think that then helps you tackle difficult situations. 
or does it helps me tackle difficult situations? I really love that. I think that's very actionable and very powerful. Um, finally, uh, we always talk about dreaming fearlessly on this show and interesting things you've learned along the way. And obviously not catastrophizing and some of those other things tied to it. But 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 what else would you share about people who they do want to dream boldly? Like you at 21, they would have been surprised if someone had laid out uh, the rich uh, trajectory you've enjoyed uh, and secured and built. But but what else would you tell them that you've learned about dreaming fearlessly, even when the odds may seem stacked or even when uh, at first it may not go well? What advice would you give give people who are aspiring? I guess it's the it's the flip side, right? Is that the downsides of that risk are generally smaller than you're anticipating, but the upsides can be immeasurable. And you will never know the upside. You'll never taste or feel the fruits of that upside if you don't go for it. I mean, I often, if I'm speaking to kids in college and sometimes I'm asked to go and speak to kids in school here and they'll say, you know, how do I get to where you could have blah, blah, blah. And I'll say, get out there, pack that backpack and buy that ticket and go and steep yourself in another culture and do not go for five days, go for five months and sit in one town, in one country and get to know it, get to feel it, get to feel at home there. And you'll realize that you are, that it's not as scary as you think it's going to be, that other cultures are not as scary as you might think they are. The people that have the same concerns and the same ups and downs, and you'll bring all of that richness back with you. It's not just that you will be taking the best of yourself there. You'll be bringing something back to your home. And I, I just think you know, you, you, can, you can overestimate the, the risks and the downsides, and you can underestimate the benefits of trying, of dreaming fearlessly. I, uh, I love that. What a, uh, what a, what a good way uh, uh, to end. I hate that we're ending, but I, I will end by saying the more we talk, the more interesting things that we have in common. And, and even though I kind of knew Zimbabwe, I didn't really appreciate that you had lived there. We talked with Jeff Flake about the fact that he had spent time in the region, but I didn't realize that you lived there. And obviously, we share Casablanca and, uh, and Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman and our love of that together. And the other day, I figured out that we love TV shows. I think almost equally. Yes, and we've got a lot of time to watch them. We do, we do. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe too much. Um, Caddy, this was uh, this was great. I um, it's it's funny talking to a friend and realizing that you're learning uh, a lot about her. So we're gonna do this again. I hope. Carlos, that was fun. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carlos Watson Show podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart, and I'm very forgiving, but, like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.